Hey, everybody. Thank you again. Les here for joining another episode of the Be a Beacon podcast, where you're encouraged to be a beacon in your life as well as others. Today, I am honored to have a very special guest. She is so active in the communities that she intersects, trans, person of color, and the autism spectrum communities. Elizabeth Graham, also known as Lizzie, she's also one of the co-facilitators of Maryland's TransUnity Group. And that organization is a volunteer and peer-led organization for trans and gender non-conforming individuals, where our allies are also welcome. So Lizzie, thank you again for joining me today. I know we've had a few uh, technicalities, so I'm definitely glad that you, you know, that we both made it to this, uh, this talk today. Uh, how's everything going? I am doing well, thank you for having me. Uh, of course. So, you know, let's start a little from the beginning. I've known you're involved in everything with a lot and, you know, and, and I've always admired, you know, your work and your involvements and, yeah, and and later on, you guys, you'll be able to click on links. You know, looking at uh, look at to look at a lot more. You know, of her work. Uh, so, Lizzie, tell us more about yourself. You can start a little from the beginning. I mean, you don't have to start. Well, I came out my mother's womb. <laughs> 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 Let's just start a little from the beginning. You know, let us uh, know more about you. Okay, I won't go into that detail, but uh, <laughs> I definitely um, up until college and my postgraduate year boarding school I was uh, in the special ed system and during my high school years at the special ed school um, there was there were some behavior um, concerns that came that brought the Asperger's diagnosis um, to, into play and um, one of you know some people sort of asked me you know, do you feel my my diagnosis was late despite being in the special education environment I was? And I sort of do, given that I was at that same school for the, for the, um, from all my 12, all, you know, for grades one through 12. And, you know, my mom was a musician. I grew up playing music. And in the performing arts, there's an emphasis on mimicking, um, imitating, and, 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 and emulating so that's one of the reasons why I think the Asperger's um, difficulties did not get recognized until later on in life when you know in high school where things are sort of less structured um, you know at least from the faculty point of view and you know the social demands and social um, intricacies get a little bit more ad advanced and you know high schools have social cliques social um drama if that's if you know if you want to put it one way like that and and you know stuff of that nature um so that's what i think one of the reasons why i think it was you know it, it was um delayed in terms of you know, dis discovery, but the learning differences were discovered back when I was in Montessori school. Um, so then I decided to take a postgrad year at Perky Yeoman School up in Pennsburg, Pennsylvania, Montgomery County, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. And I took a year, I mean, it, the year still counted as, you know, as academically. So my, what my purpose there was to socially adapt a mainstream 
educational environment. And then when I was sitting in my dorm one night, I was looking up support for students with Asperger's um, in college and Marshall University out in Huntington, West Virginia, along the Ohio um, River um, popped up. And they have a program, part of the West Virginia Autism Training Center, which is now called the College Program for Students with Autism Spectrum Disorder. And it, it, the, I think the, the program was at least their first cohort graduated in 2002. That's sort of when the program really started to launch. And a lot of other colleges and universities across the country have sort of modeled after our program because every, almost every, you know, college, you know, has a disability support center. And I think that um, has to do with the individuals with, you know, Disabilities Education Act, but not all disability support centers at colleges and universities know how to uniquely support the college, the students on the autism spectrum. And the college program at Marshall University for students with autism is for um, students who can um, function and live rather independently on their own in the residence halls. And some students do live uh, you know, off of campus with you know, roommates or even on their own if that's such an arrangement that can be made. Um, <coughs> so I went through that program at Marshall University. I have my bachelor's of arts in psychology with a minor in counseling. And my personal focus in college was bereavement in people with autism. And that was influenced because from personal experience, um, during my freshman year of high school, um, my mom died in her 50s from skin cancer. Oh, I give and my condolences. Thank you. And it was sort of after that, that the Asperger's diagnosis came to light. So that's sort of what it, you know inspired me to choose psychology. Originally, I wanted to go into medicine after helping to take care of our um, my grandfather who moved in, and I wanted to go to med school or nursing school. But my mom's you know death sort of um, you know changed my career interest tra trajectory. I wanted to go into like psychology or counseling, that sort of field. So. You know, I wanted to go into bereavement counseling in college, but even in college, your interest can definitely change career-wise. Um, it was it, the director at the time, Dr. Becker Cottrell, I was talking to her about, you know, my interests, and then she suggested, why don't you look at bereavement in people with autism? And then I said, you know what, I think I should make that my, my senior project, because um, at Marsh University, there's the annual College of Liberal Arts um, conference, where students in the College of Liberal Arts can present whatever you know work that they want to, whether it be a research project or something that they're working on with their with their uh, professor advisor. And I came to one of my professors and said, "Hey, you want to help me with this?" And he said, "Definitely." And <clears throat> then I wanted to look more at the autism. Uh, field line of work and Scott Badditch, who is the now former president of the Autism Society of America, his son was also in the autism program and we had met there, we'd become friends and we still keep in touch every now and then. And Scott and I met at a, a reception for the, for the uh, autism program close to Thanksgiving break in 2012, which is my senior year. And he said, you know, are you coming back home to DC? 
because I hear you live in DC. And I said, yes, I am. He gave me his card and said, once you get back and get settled in, please call my office. I would like to get together with you to talk about your ideas about this further. So we, we met and he said, you know, I definitely would like you to, you know, once you get this project finalized, write a paper version for it in our autism um, publication for spring 2013 and present at, at our national conference in Pittsburgh. And I did. And, um, you know, the paper was titled Bereavement and Autism, a Universal Challenge with a Unique um, a, a universal experience with unique challenges, and that is now published by the Arc of the United States Autism Now blog online. Um, the original version was not as good as the updated version because I was straight out of college, and you could definitely tell if you read it, it was definitely you know written by a, a college student with not much practical field. Um, experience in terms of the experience depth of the paper, but the paper from, you know, a citation point of view was well written. Um, and then I presented at the autism conference. And then this is sort of where the autism and my current career so, sort of unfolds. I, I found a job in Montgomery County, Maryland, helping um, adults with developmental disabilities to, that also includes autism who live in community-based residential settings, whether it be their own homes, in apartment settings, or with their own families, or in staff-supported group homes with, with housemates. And that is, a, you know, if someone wants to go into the developmental disability field, I do recommend start off at least one year in, direct care, in the direct care position. And, you know, I definitely wanted to use my autism expertise. And then I found a job that's more specific to autism for children uh, with autism in Prince George's County. And, you know, I, and my gender transition sort of started when I took the job change because, you know, my, my stress started, you know, to keep building up. And I was like, look, I already have my bachelor's degree. This direct care job is not allowing me to have time for a social life um, and things like that. I mean, it wasn't steady pay. It was low pay, but and, and not steady. So I was like, you know, I think it's time for promotion and to move on. So I definitely moved on. And then I had, um, um, you know, a colleague of a colleague slash fellow alum of Marshall University who worked at the at the time for the Ark of the United States, and the Ark is a wonderful organization. It's one of the largest organizations in the country, with independent chapters across the country advocating and providing direct services to adults with disabilities, whether it be residential support care in their homes. Um, case management and service coordination for other types of services, um, day support services or vocational um, support services. And each chapter serves its region a tad bit differently according to the needs of the uh, region. And and she basically, um, you know, got, got my paper republished again on autismnow.org and um, she was the one who also helped me in a way find my current job at the Ark of Prince George's County as a service coordinator for the Maryland Medicaid waiver for children with autism spectrum disorder. 
And that's sort of when my involvement in the autism community and the local transgender community, community began. Um, and I've been involved with the Archive of the United States and several, um, um, you know, self-advocate, volunteer self-advocate moments. And I, since then, I've been presenting at different national conferences. I presented at the at our national conference um, in 2018, and I presented at the um, 2019 Autism Society of America conference about the intersection of L being autistic and in the LGBT uh, community. And I've also had other, you know, local speaking um, engagements um, since then. Some of them, you know, on my own time, some of them, you know, for work. And um, my upbringing, um, you know, my dad's side of the family, you know, is, is Asian. So I was um, brought up, you know, in sort of like, a, you know, half Asian culture at least at home and my mom's side was a uh, Scandinavian um, from Minnesota so I definitely you know was definitely brought up in a predominantly you know white white culture but with some Asian influence Chinese influence um, you know from a childhood rearing um, you know perspective in that sense and you know you brought up the intersection and you know some of it is, you know, my dad, honestly, I don't think, I, in my opinion, I don't think he realizes, you know, the, the, the generational differences that his parents were immigrants, but then he didn't get to have the childhood that I, you know, got to have. I got to travel a lot when I was uh, a child. I had the benefit of good, you know, special education. Growing up, I had a babysitter. I had my own room, things like that. And my dad didn't, you know, grow up like grow up like that. And my mom, she grew up in southern Minnesota in the college town of Mankato, which, from what I hear, is definitely growing right now as a town. So, so the cultural influences were, were definitely, you know, you know, sort so, sort of at play. And yet, I don't speak or culturally identify with the Chinese culture. And there have been some, even within the Chinese culture and not the non-Asian culture, you know, that, that are trying to wrap their mind around it. And I think they are capable. I mean, here's an example. Not all black people are from Africa. One time a black person approached me and, you know, somehow thought I spoke Chinese, mm. you know, or something or alluded to that. And I said, Sia Hamba Kukunini Quintos, which is Zulu for the song We Are are marching in the light of God. And I was like, what, you don't speak Zillow? You know, and he looked at me, you know, he looked at me weird. And I'm like, think about it, how many, you know, like, for example, Monica Lewinsky, you know, no one asked her about her German, you know, or European heritage, but yet in the film, The Made in Manhattan, when the politician was involved with the, um, the, the hotel housekeeper played by Jennifer Lopez, they asked, what's your relationship with the Latino community? And, you know, if I look, if I'm, you know, if I was looking at a YouTube video correctly, Senator, former Senator Barbara Mikulski, who, you know, who is of Polish descent, she was on a trip to Poland, and she actually needed an, a language interpreter to converse with um, her Polish political counterparts. Um, so that's, you know, one thing I want to emphasize, you know, race, 
versus culture. You know, you could have someone in, of the same race in the city, uh, you know, but for, you know, someone of the same race out, out living the farm life or, or a rural type of um, culture. And they might have two you know, different, you know, set of ideas. So that's what one of my upbringings have taught me. And one thing, um, you know, with the, with the intersection of, you know, of being um, transgender and on the autism spectrum, a lot of people with autism either aren't aware of or just don't care to follow certain social norms. And it can be, and that can be a good thing and it can be a bit, bad thing good or bad depends on the context and i think if we in general if we don't think outside the box we're not going to make any um any progress and you know if you don't if, if people don't learn you know how to nurture neurodiversity just think about you know for example silicon valley some of all the tech geniuses i'm very sure are on a lot of them more than we might think might be on the autism spectrum when we just don't know it, they might not know it. And I've heard Temple Grandin, the famous woman with autism, speak about that as well. And one thing, you know, mm. I was adopted at the age of six months from Taiwan. And, you know, that's also another aspect that, you know, perspective that I can, um, you know, give on. You know, for me, when I was beginning my gender transition and beginning hormones, you know, people, you know, at first were thinking, oh, aren't you going to be worried about infertility? But I also said, you know, I'm adopted. I'm aware of that's another way to raise a child. And a lot of the kids that I went to school with were also adopted. And if you read the news, you may have given birth to a child, but that doesn't necessarily make you the parent. Just look at the news. Um, yeah. And one thing that I point out for those who have trouble understanding and respecting gender identity or transgender person think about it. if you if the law can understand and respect the lawful relationship between the parent and an adopted child and as well as the bond the psychological bond that is established over time or already depending on when the adoption happened in the developmental stage and there's no biological relationship you should be able to respect gender identity regardless of gender or anatomy assigned at birth. Also, think about immigration. People recognize that you know you're an American citizen. You share the person adopts the values and and overall ideas of what they believe to be American, despite being born in a different country. So it's sort of like a passport saying we recognize you as an American despite this. And a lot of other states have adopted, you know, you know, a process for people to legally update their gender marker. So in a way, despite something that was assigned to us or attributed to us at birth, we have now have all these legal options and legal recognitions of new adopted or late discovered identities and I think it's important to you know recognize that you can already wrap your mind around it and think about you know you, you people think there are two genders but but yet they recognize so many different food ethnicities and races and different cultures and languages and genres and I thinking you know that's i mean 
gender, you know, is a social construct. Sexual anatomy is more for an evolutionary, um, you know, perspective, and maybe sometimes pleasure, depending on if you think about it. Um, but also with the autism, you know, part, some of some people in the field have come to me and asked, do you think it is a, um, you know, a focused interest as many on the autism spectrum have a focused area of interest. And I think, and I say, well, as if, if the person's being consistent, insistent and persistent, so yes, consistent, insistent and persistent on their identity, um, and the, the, those three triads I've learned, I think I remember hearing in um, a Katie Couric special, Gender Revolution. So if they meet that triad over time, I think it's more than just a focused interest. And I think that's one you know, thing, regard, you know, it could be, you know, sexual orientation too for someone on the autism spectrum. And especially for those on the autism spectrum who are in um, Medicaid-funded services, sometimes they think, you know, there's this mental age theory or infantilism or, or, or views that people think, you know, that, you know, they have autism, they can't understand it. And, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of things that I see in my work, even working with adults is, and children, sex education is not taught. And if it's taught at all, it is not taught properly. And as a result, you know, people with these, you know, neurodiverse differences will either, without it, will either be, you know, prone to being abused or harassed or assaulted or not unknowingly and not understandingly, you know, make someone else comfortable or, or um, you know, violate consent because there's always, you know, a case of someone doing inappropriate touching so instead of just making it a rule of no touching, I think there should be an explanation saying, yes, you may find this person attractive, but you, you, you got to respect boundaries, physical boundaries. And that's one, you know, way that I think, you know, sex ed can be taught depending on someone's own understanding, level, level of understanding. Um, and you know, the cultural stuff, you know, in the Asian culture, sometimes there's the, the, the traditional Asian stereotypes is, you know, you, you know, you always strive to achieve greatness, whatever achievement you achieve, you know, it's always assumed you're going to go on to a next achievement, like nothing, you know, is enough. And I can, you know, I can definitely relate to that and think, you know, the Asian culture, you know, culturally, they don't have any emphasis on talking about feelings or emotions and talking to other people about your problems. And, you know, sometimes that's viewed as a sign of weakness if you rely on others, you know, for help. And that's sort of the impression that I sort of got, when, you know, when my dad raised me, especially after my mom died. You know, so I was conflicted a little bit. My mom said, hey, don't be afraid to ask for help. We're, we're you know, we're trying to send you, you know, to, you know, you know, to get help or something like that. Um, so in a nutshell, that was my upbringing and sort of what brought me up to here, up to now. Wow, that is really, you know, a journey. And so one thing I, I wanted to, um, you, you, all, you mentioned as far as like, 
sex education and you know things and things like relationships and boundaries throughout your throughout your work and you know throughout your life have you found those to be kind of challenging with the people that you work with because it's like a lack of education or you know and then it's kind of that communicative barrier yeah i'll i'll everything just said, you know, are definitely things that are, you know, often at play or, or, or one of the barriers, as, as you said, and it is not uncommon for an issue to come up. And then you realize, oh, we haven't had that talk yet. Mm -hmm. Or this person doesn't understand, you know, what is going on physiologically. You know, so, you know, there are some parts, you know, you know, it, sometimes with autism, there is an accompanying intellectual disability. And then in that case, even with intellectual disabilities, there are still things that even people with intellectual disabilities can understand. It's, you know, intellect, you know, intelligence is different than knowledge. You know, yeah, I think it's important to, 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 to recognize that. And, you know, a lot of the, the, the folks that I've worked with, they like their routine. So if you say there's not going to be any school today or, you know, so-and-so will not be working with you today, they can get upset and they know their routines. And that's definitely emotion, you know, right there. And um, that shows that, you know, they are aware of changes in those things, but sometimes they may not be able to get a big picture idea. And one of the terms that I learned from Temple Grandin is bottom up thinking or, mm -hmm. you know, going from um, specific to abstract. Yes. Like one time in her, in her talk, Temple Grandin put a, um, a picture of, <coughs> of a letter made up of different those, letters. And for those that aren't aware of Temple Grandin, can you give a, you know, just kind of a brief, you know, a brief description of who uh, this person is? Yes, Temple Grandin uh, was uh, born and raised in Boston, where some of my family is today, so I sort mm -hmm. of feel that connection with her. But she's currently a professor at Colorado State University in animal science. And she definitely, and her area of emphasis is cattle and livestock in the agricultural industry. And she's revolutionized how cattle and poultry are slaughtered for those who eat meat and poultry. Most likely you've eaten um, meat that was processed in a way that was designed by her. Um, she is a famous woman with autism, actually one of the most famous ones. She grew up in the 50s, and when you hear her talk, you can definitely tell, tell that generational difference. Um, but she definitely does have good ideas and even helped me understand you know, things further about, okay, here's one way to look at it or here's one way to explain it. And I definitely <coughs> recommend people read her books. And, you know, if someone, I definitely, you know, every now and then I get calls, especially during pre COVID, I would get a call from a parent saying, hey, you know, I'm looking for services, you know, for my child with autism. And I say, okay, before you look for services, let me help you with how you actually interact with your child. And, and the book I recommend is the book, a book by Temple Grandin. So I definitely, you know, she, not only does she share her experience, she gives tips on that. But anyways, in one of her um, um, 
you know, one of her talks, she put a, a picture of a letter made up of different little letters. And I noticed the small letters first. So that's seeing the small picture before the big picture. And, or sometimes seeing the details before the main idea. So sometimes I might see a picture and I might say, oh, it, it's like if someone is taking a picture in their car, I might, I like, I might try to say, oh, is that a, is, is that a Toyota car or, or this? And I've driven a lot of Toyotas in my life, so most likely I can guess a Toyota. So that's an example of, you know, of how I think. So when the parents on my case will come to me asking, you know, for <coughs> ideas on what they can work on with their behavior um, support staff, I'm like, you know, they think the main idea is this certain behavior, but my focus is on, okay, let's look at what's surrounding the behavior. How can we use, how can we redirect this behavior? Or if this is a focus interest, does it need to be extinguished or can it be redirected or something like that? And that's, you know, and, and, you know, I've, I've been on, I've been on one of those home visits where, you know, people are like, oh, that's an interesting perspective, redirect the interest and, you know, find a way to use the, the interest in working on other goals that the child may be working on. So that's one way I, I see the details before the big picture. And a lot of the times I'm telling the families, you know, when I'm talking on the phone during my case management duties, I sort of ask, how are they understanding this, the situation with the pandemic? And for them, I'm, I'm saying they are, they are hearing the message of handwashing. They know that schools are closed and they are maybe picking up on people wearing masks outside. They're picking up on those details, but, but they might not put every, they might not connect the dots, so to say. So that's why I definitely say they're picking up on all of this stuff, but not the details. One example I use is Carly Fleischman. She's a mm -hmm. woman with autism, non-speaking autism up in Canada. Mm. And she wrote a book with her father called Carly's Voice. And in the book, there was mention that she talked about, let's donate money to a 9-11 memorial organization down in New York and the father was not aware that she could absorb it but he said in the book that the during 9-11 she was alive she was in the room the television was on but she they did not understand that she might have picked up on that or was able to make a connection until later so that's what I say people pick up on the details they are more aware of things that you know that they are like for me, when I was young, I remember my baptism when I was, when I was young. I have faint memories of it, but it wasn't until later that I knew what was going on after it was explained to me. I remember, I remember the stained glass windows in the church. It's not the church I currently attend, but it, it, I still remember the church where it was. I remember what the narthex looked like at the time. I remember having water, you know, over my head. I remember that aspect, but I didn't really understand it. It wasn't until later that I saw examples of churches with stained glass windows and examples of baptisms that I put the details together. So that's one thing to be realizing if someone's on the autism spectrum, they may be, 
it's not that that they're you know dumb they may be just the last to get it so sometimes you know i've attended book discussions where there are no visual aids and i'm always the last person to ask a question and they're sort of like oh wait a second we talked about that topic hours and hours ago so and that was noticed when i was in in, in in um, school too that in one class we were studying different three different ancient civilizations egyptian roman and greek in elementary school in a rather arts-based um, method and my homeroom teacher said i'm sort of concerned because they moved on to the next culture and now you're just learn you know picking up on everything um you know everything from the last unit and I think it's because maybe they weren't detailed enough. Now, here's another example in college. I, you know, in, when you're a psychology major, you have to take statistics at least in terms of how it's used in, you know, behavioral research. So I took intro to behavioral statistics, just the intro, just the ba basics. I got a D. I barely passed. But the next semester, mm -hmm. I took, I, I took um, experimental psychology. And that was specifically applied. But guess what? I got a B in wow. that class. Wow. Now, my explanation <laughs> for that great trajectory was because it was applied specifically to things. I went out and did the experiment. It was an observational ex uh, you know, experiment at the campus Starbucks. So I really, that really motivated me. So. That um, is an example of how, for many with learning differences, hypothetical examples in, the in theory is not working out. Another case in point, my intro to sociology teacher, um, Oki Napier, may he rest in peace. He was a part-time drag queen. It was intro to so sociology. So they said, okay, here's intro to definitions, here's, how he applied it. He gave very specific examples, and the good example he gave what the class was pretty much sociology of LGBT. That's pretty much what it was, because he, he talked about a, a a female to male transgender officer, I think, in a police force either in San Francisco or somewhere on the West Coast, and he talked about um, I forget we we. we I forgot got exactly, but we talked about gender identity in that class. And he said, anyone who writes papers with a bias will fail the course. So, wow. or, the, or, or, or the assignment or, or something like that. So given what I was going through, I got an A in that class. I got an A LGBT grade you know, in that class. And he and I were sort of involved with the LGBT group. So he sort of understood that I was sort of in the closet. I was also the founding chair person of the transgender outreach committee of the, of the campus's LGBT group. And this was my freshman year. So I was already, because I had already been in boarding school, I was already used to a campus environment. So that's why my freshman year socially was like my sophomore year because I had already gotten involved so much that people were like, you're a freshman? You're already this involved? And I'm like, hey, I'm already used to being involved with campus stuff like that. So, um, so that was my involvement with campus. I was also involved with LGBT matters at, mm -hmm. um, at um, 
in, in boarding school. And I want to touch on that. We, we've talked about that, uh, that before because, you know, th th this day and age, there's a lot of talk about privilege. And I think, and I want to shout out, I want to, you know, speak to those who have a lot of privilege who don't realize, realize, you know, how they can use their privilege or that, that they, they do it. I went to private education up until Marshall University. I grew up privileged, grew up privileged. Oh, wow. And do you think that gave you, um, did that give you kind of more of an advantage being on a spectrum, you know, kind of with accessibility and everything? Yeah, exactly. The early intervention and, you know, especially for the LGBT folks who may not be high up on, you know, in a certain, in a certain socioeconomic view or, or students who are in the, in the public school system, I, you know, that, you know, when I was at the Perkyoman School, there was an incident of transphobic bullying. Mm, so thankfully, it, it was cyberbullying, but mm. thankfully it was a secure and tight network on campus that they shut down the network to find, to do some digging and they found out who it was. And three days later, the person who did it was expelled. Now, Good. I want to say that I was lucky and I know not every student, even students in public schools might not get that fast of you know of justice you know in terms of lgbt bullying so i definitely want to say that you know i recognize how fortunate i was and um you know they, they knew i was not out at the time and this was two to three weeks before graduation but i do want to say that you know, it was at a private school. So private schools, in my experience, kind of take care of things internally and mm -hmm. faster than from what I know public schools tend so, to do. So being at a private school when the cyberbullying happened during you, during you transitioning, this, uh, of, it, it sounded like it was just quickly taken care of compared to a person that may have been, you know, at a lower socioeconomic status in, in a public school. That, you know, that, that's what I'm saying. And I'm yeah. taking, you know, want to take a moment with the intent to recognize that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important this day and age that people recognize, you know, their privilege and not use it to, and, and not use it in bad ways. And I think if we had an advantage or, or a certain privilege, I think we should recognize and, and find, ask ourselves, how can we use that to help others? Right. So that's, you know, what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to use my own advantages and my own experiences to help others who may not be in that, you know, in that, um, in that ballpark or that, or in that whatever, you know, term you might want to use. So, you know, I recognize that a lot of people in, you know, in public schools may, may have it harder than those in, you know, in private schools or parents with, you know, connections mm -hmm. and, 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 and pull and pull to, so, you know, right. to sort of say. So, I mean, I grew up with parents, you know, they had a lot of connections to people. Um, wow. You know, my mom was in the military and she was very good. Um, she was actually good friends with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad had a lot of other government jobs doing things that he wasn't even allowed to tell the family. You know, so that right. sort of gives you an idea of you know, of sort of the background I grew up in. And they, you know, and even before I was adopted, they already had top secret security clearances. So that sort of helped with the adoption because that security clearance pretty much vetted them. So, 
you know, that that's, you know, one thing I, I do want to recognize. I'm definitely, you know, passing on the wisdom and what I've learned as a student in the special ed system to those mm. who may be on my caseload saying, hey, here's an idea mm. of what, what, you know, what you can do. And I have the advantage of telling people saying, hey, it's not all about seeking services and behavior support staff. The behavior support staff is good, but they're not going to be with your child or your adult, you know, loved one all the time. You know, direct care has a high turnover. The average turnover is two years, if not less. Due to low pay, due to low pay and inconsistent hours, depending on setting. So, you know, I definitely emphasize parents. You know, try to learn from the behavior support staff. Supplement that because if it weren't for my parents sitting down with me, making sure I got my homework done, or doing supplemental activities for my homework, I don't think I would have gotten where I was. Like. They saw me reading, you know, certain comic books. I read the Tintin comic books because it was about a guy with a dog going on different hiking adventures. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Exactly. I, 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 the interest sort of faded when I was 11, but, you know, my parents would always sit down and read it with me. My parents read to me at night. They took turns reading, and that also helped with, you know, the gender norms. You know, they took turns, you know, doing jobs, and, you know... You know, my mom was in the military, so whenever my dad would say, be a man, I'm like, mom could fire a rifle if her push-ups are better. Don't tell me to be a man. And also, if a guy says that, just think about what they're saying about women. Yeah. If a guy says, be a man, they are saying something about negative, something negative about women. They are. They may not want to admit it, but they are. So, um where were we? Uh, so, you know, the, you know, the incident at, you know, at the boarding school, I, I still speak positively about, about the boarding school. I still donate annually, still keep in touch with the Alumni Association. I, and I still have a lot of good things to say about, um, you know, Perk Yeoman. And I'm also a woman of faith. I'm active in my church. And on that That's note, good. you know, at, you know, at first it's kind of, I, you know, I think, the, the person who, who spread the photos of me in women's clothes to the student body email, he, I don't think he was in a very good place in, in a way. I think he's, he had issues um, growing up that are going to be beyond what I can understand and comprehend, you know, but, you know, I do pray that he learns or either learn or has learned the impact of his actions or understand transphobia or at least understand what the LGBT community is going through. And whether I do forgive him or not, well, I'll just put it out there that he's welcome to reach out to me. You know, I'm, I'm connected with the director of alumni affairs. My contact information is with the school. So if he wants to, you know, reach out to me and, you know, apologize, he, he's more than welcome to, welcome to do so. And I know that people change and I hope and I hope he does change so I know and I'm allowing that opportunity to happen um, but I do you know hope that he you know I, I wish him the best in his whatever he's doing he went off to a fine uh, university in Pennsylvania I'm not mm -hmm. going to say which one but I you know I do hope he has a success, successful career in, in whatever he does but I do hope he realizes you know, the impact of his actions and his thoughts.
No, and that's and that's that's amazing. You're not, you know, and this all this had to be hurtful, but you're still wishing this person well. How was it through your faith that led you kind of to this place of forgiveness where you can still wish him well and not just, you know, say a slew of explicitives and, you know, and curse him? Right. I mean, well, I mean, obviously I don't, I don't disagree with the, with the expulsion. I think that was, you know, necessary. Well, first off, he was living on my floor and I had to pass his room every time I left the building mm -hmm. to go to the stairs. So I'm glad on that part, and um, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I mean, of course, you know, there needs to be some punishment as long as he learns from it. That's the that's the main thing that I want, you know, want to happen. And some people, you know, you know, may never learn, and that's, I don't know, it's either them or or God, because you know, God has the power to harden people's hearts. He did with Pharaoh, as he told Moses. So I think, you know, it, it's just by, you know, the grace of God that I know that, you know, I don't, you know, he, I don't know. I mean, he might have thought he was, you know, I don't know what, I honestly don't know what he was thinking. I'm not going to guess what he was thinking, but the result of his actions were, were, were definitely transphobic. I can, I can definitely label, put a label label on that and there were a few other um school mates who sort of um you know sort of made you know you know made, made fun of me and you know i i think you know 10 15 years later i think they might have matured and learned so I, I don't necessarily want to you know point a finger on them you know too too much because i know people change since high school I, i've reunited with some of you know, the people from my old high school, the one where I really knew people and, they, and they've changed. I mean, people are like, oh, hey, you know, how's it, how's it going? And, you know, I saw them at a reunion and we, you know, we were all mature. We were, we were adults and whatever, you know, teenage shenanigans we had between us, you know, are behind us. And if, you know, if we didn't want to talk to someone at, at the, at the, at the alumni party, we just didn't talk to them. You know, we were, you know, we just kept it civil. Whereas, you know, if it's on, you know, teenagers in high school don't always know how to be civil that way. If they have an issue with you, they go and bother you instead of keeping away from you. So, and, you know, I, I think, you know, people, people learn and I don't necessarily want them punished. I just want them to learn, you know, from, you know, from their wrongdoings and, um, you know, looking back, if any one of my classmates thinks about back to that incident, you know, of, of that year, I hope they look back to it as a teaching moment, if that ever, if that experience ever comes back to their mind. Um, so I think, you know, transphobia is definitely an issue. Um, it is definitely illegal. And, you know, transphobia is what led to Amy Stevens at the funeral home in the Midwest you know, get fired, and and that was her job. That you know, that was her livelihood, and that's her way of putting food on the on the table. You know, that was her way of meeting Maslow's hierarchy. So that form of bullying is definitely, you know, uh, you know, unacceptable. And you know, of course, every workplace you're going to have an interaction with at least one coworker that you don't either the coworker you don't like or the interaction you don't like. We all have, and we all will. But 
you know, completely getting someone out of the job place just because of that, that's unacceptable. That, that part is, you know, un unacceptable. And, you know, I'm like, you know, if, you know, the thing is, you know, I think there's turnover in customers in the funeral industry. You know, when I was at the funeral home for my mom or my grandparents, I really didn't care who my funeral director was. I was like, let's just give mom a nice burial. I was 15. That's what I was caring about. Of course, my dad had to deal with the bills, so he was dealing with the finances of that as well. But my perspective is, hey, look, you know, as long as, you know, you, you respect, you know, what the funeral is going to look like and you, you know, you, you know, dress up my mom the way that we, that we asked, that's all I care about. What you, you know, what you do outside of the work is none of my business, you know, and, you know, that it wouldn't have mattered to me if the funeral director was transgender. I'll be like, as long as the person gives us a good funeral, that's all I care about. You know, so I know everyone is not, is not able to see it that way. Um, so, I mean, I did view the uh, video on YouTube that the funeral home um, in Wisconsin where Amy Stevens was fired from made and they, you know, obviously gave it a different, you know, different perspective. They came from a conservative Christian-based perspective. And trust me, I could not finish watching that video. I only watched it halfway because I just couldn't stand what they were saying. Um, so, um, any other questions? Wow. I mean, that is, that has been very, you know, enlightening. And of course, there will be a lot more, you know, a few more resource links that will be included, you know, in this. And so I wanted to ask you, have you, were you, did it take a lot of healing and you really get in more in depth? Uh, into your faith, um, and I'm glad that you are in a very affirming church. Um, the you know, and with participation and everything, I know you you're very involved with uh, your church as well. Um, so how yes, how has it been? Definitely. You know, your, like your healing journey. Well, you know, healing from that experience, you know, you know, was a journey, and obviously, it had I, you know, definitely had to develop the trust of my other friends who I'm still friends with today. I still keep in touch with uh, a friend of mine um, who, um, who I who I don't see often, but we text and talk with each other over Facebook every now and then. And she's out in Ohio, and we both go to the same open and affirming denomination. Uh, we will. We both belong to the United Church of Christ, which is a progressive Protestant denomination. Mm -hmm. uh, many, the majority of our churches are open and affirming, designated, meaning that they're welcome to um, members and clergy of different sexual orientations and gender identities. I go. I want to give a big shout out to my congregation, Westmoreland Congregational United Church of Christ. At, on Westmoreland Circle in Bethesda, Maryland, where Western Avenue in Massachusetts intersect on the border. That was the church I grew up in after I was baptized at another church further up, at, further up the road on Western Avenue. And that church welcomed me back with open arms. And it was in 2017 that I began coming back on a regular basis. And the pastor, Tim Tutt, 
you know, approached me and said, you know, we should definitely address gender identity in our church, and especially with our open and affirming statement. And he said, we're going to go through a process in storytelling, and I want you to be a part of it. I'm going to invite some other people as well to speak about transgender issues in different you know, in different contexts, legal and spiritual as well. So we had a series of talks that I, that I was involved in. And then later in that fall, we unanimous, the church unanimously voted to add gender identity in addition to sexual orientation to our church's open and affirming statement. And the United Church of Christ has a wonderful partnership with the Unitarian Universalist Association Church. And together, we as two churches have what's called the Our Whole Lives Curriculum, also known as the OWL Curriculum. And it is a definitely a spiritual, sex-positive, open and affirming sexuality course for grades 1 through 12. At my church, we mostly teach it to the seventh and ninth grade cohorts. Um, it's not taught every year because our, you know, our youth group and Sunday school structure is not currently where there's going to be a seventh to ninth grade um, population every school year. We're, you know, we're sort of dispersed like that. Um, but I taught it during the 2018-2019 um, school year, and I and there's a room for an LGBT panel. And I invited some of my transgender friends in the community to come and talk <coughs> to uh, the, the teenagers in the group. And while I can't disclose, um, you know, what was, you know, discussed in this group, but the questions from the teenagers were less about understanding transgender identities their questions were more about what can we do if we witness a transphobic experience at school what can teenagers do to help even transgender adults and those were the those were the questions i mostly um you know heard about and even the, when i was doing the talks even from the adults the questions were about you know, how did I come, some of the questions that you were asking, it was not a trans one-on-one talk. I mean, I go to a, I belong to a fairly well-educated um, um, congregation. Everyone, you know, is definitely well-achieved in their respective careers. We have a lot of attorneys uh, and, and um, you know, wonderful people in my congregation. So a lot of of their questions when you know when it comes to LGBT matters was more big picture stuff rather than trans 101 or LGBT 101 questions it's more about the questions is how can we support you or I have a family member who is questioning how can I support them so far those are the the themes of the questions and discussions that I get from my fellow church members that is wow, exactly. that a great, and that was a great shout out. If anyone's in the area, you're visiting, definitely uh, give the ch this church a visit. And um, there will, and hopefully, and hopefully you can include a, a link uh, to this uh, church as well. Yes, um, yes. go to westmorelanducc.org, uh, and then you can find more about the life of us. We are on uh, Westbourne Circle, so our closest metro stop is Friendship Heights. And of course, during you know the COVID pandemic, we are meeting in person 
and we are in gradual talks about how to reopen, but that's just in the talking phase, not in the action phase. Um, but if you're listening to this um, podcast abroad or outside of the Friendship Heights or Bethesda neighborhood, go on to ucc.org or openandaffirming.org and, and you can find an open and affirming UCC congregation in your area. And I definitely invite you to come and visit some of our churches or attend a congregation to get a vibe to, to see if that's a congregation for you. And for those who want to give church a try, especially for those who might have had a bad church upbringing in respect to LGBT, I do welcome you as a member of the UCC to join us. And there's a lot of, um, every Sunday evening, the Open and Affirming Coalition of the UCC has um, a Zoom worship. So you can find that out at the Open and Affirming website and the Open and Affirming um, Facebook page as well. And, you know, you know, it's definitely, you know, worth a try if that's what you're, what you're looking for, especially for those who are looking for an Open and Affirming um, con congregation. Wow, that, that is great. And I really want to thank you again, Lizzie, for you know, all of this information. And is there anything else you would like for, um, for the listeners to know? Um, and what would you share with others you know, that share your intersections that may be you know, having a hard time? Um, what, uh, what, what's, your, what's your message to them? My message would be do what you feel you need to do to get yourself into a place where you can be yourself. For me, I knew for me, I felt like I had to get a new job, which I was ready for anyways, to transition, to get a fresh new start. And I wanted to wait until I was done with school, financially independent and living away from my family should any overt transphobic reaction occur. So that's one step I took. It was a practical step. And I think you have to think about, are you in a safe place to either transition right. or come out? And if you want to, what steps can you take to get there? And, you know, it, I understand not everyone is not out in all contexts. I'm not out in all contexts in areas of my life. And that's something that we as the LGBT community should be understanding of, you know, that we're not going to be out in every single, you know, sing, single place because, you know, we, we're just afraid of the reaction of how it could be. And, you know, we all know that even if, you know, we are legally protected, an employer could find some other way to around it. Say, oh, well, we, we're going to go for a more, with a more qualified person of, you know, of some sort or something like that. Or, you know, we interviewed other candidates and we like other, you know, you know, going to move with other options like that. And, you know, I've heard, I've heard stuff like that. So, you know, there's always going to be profiling going on. And um, in many cases, this type of profiling is not good. And, you know, what I, you know, again, as a reminder, we can't control what other people do. We can only react and control the actions that, that, that we take. And, you know, you know, sometimes no matter how well qualified you, you know, you present yourself, no matter how much of a business front you put on in job interviews, if they sometimes if they do find out, they might change their mind and say, "Hey, we found a better qualified um, candidate," or they might, you know, concoct some other reason. And it's unfortunate; it will still happen. 
and you know it could either be they could either be you know that could be the reason why or it could be a perceived reason but the best advice i can say is you know get find a way to get yourself into a position whether it be financially housing whatever to where you can be you know be yourself and also maryland transunity we meet online we're meeting online these days so the first and third sundays is when we meet and that's when we usually would meet at cedarling unitarian in bethesda and we also meet the second thursday of the um of the month usually at university christian church in hyattsville but due to the online circumstances we are these meetings are all are all online so if you go onto the transunity website you'll look get an e you'll see an email address email that and my colleague who manages the website and email will give you the zoom links to our next meeting um and as uh, in terms of age group uh, the youngest we've tend to have is high school seniors but most of the part most of our you know attendees are you know college students and adults but high school students high school seniors are most definitely welcome great great and i'm looking forward to hearing more about this and following up with you and you know and for the public to learn more through the through the links that'll be in the um that will be included um thank you so much lizzie for coming on and um everyone if you would like to you know learn more uh she will have links uh, that will be uh, below and definitely feel free to always come back and as always Thank you, Lizzie, for being a beacon, not only in your life, but in others. And everyone, as always, you can reach out to me as well at less at lesslighthouse.com, lesslighthouse.com, or on social media. Thank you again. Y'all take it easy. Remember to drink your water. Remember to relax and take some time for yourself. All right, everybody, take it easy. Peace.